One of the things that we need to contend against, uh, tooth and nail, and I hope that doesn't sound too aggressive, but I do think it needs to be uh, very strong. One of the things we need to contend against is the thought that Christianity and being a Christian is just one thing in our life. It's just a part of life. Or perhaps to put it more positively, we need to contend for the fact that Christianity is an all-of-life thing. Uh, and it's, it, it's something that we have entered into, uh, which is actually entering into the realities of what life is about. Uh, this is not just the religious part of life while we live the other part of life. Uh, being a follower of the Lord Jesus is everything and is meant to be everything. And it actually consumes all things. Um, now, uh, many people, I think, do live as if uh, life is about um, their hobbies, their interests, their, their marriages, their family, and they kind of fit the other stuff in or they don't even consider it at all. Uh, but what I want to say is that Christianity is far bigger than that. We want to keep saying this. And I want to prove it to you this morning. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, I want to do it by paying attention to a word, one word in the Bible, um, and what it means. Now, if you've not worked this out yet, in the last bunch of weeks, we've been going through a series of words. Uh, I'll throw them up on the screen here. We've been looking at the idea of election, regeneration, repentance, faith, uh, justification, sanctified, glorified. We've been looking at these various theological words as ways to understand the act of being saved, what it is to be saved, God's work of salvation. And today, we're up to the second last work there, sanctified. The idea of sanctification. And uh, it's one of those words that when you actually understand it and get your head into it, it opens up the fact that all of life is what Christianity is about. Uh, that all of life, Christian, non-Christian, for all of us, there's something happening that God is at work doing. Now, what does the word sanctification mean? Um, some of you will be aware of this, of course, but uh, the word sanctification comes from the idea of being set apart set apart from, uh, being different to. Uh, it's where you get the idea of saint from, you know, the special one and so on. Um, being set apart to God, being set apart from the world is the idea of sanctification. Now, the way we most usually use it, though it's not always used like this in the Bible, but the way we most usually use it is the idea of growing in set-apartness, growing in saintness. Um, and just to say at this point, actually, uh, there is a tradition that talks much about certain Christians as being saints. In the Bible, we are all the holy ones. That's the word where the holy one word comes from, is from saint. We're all saints. If you've been saved by the Lord Jesus, you've been set apart for himself to be a saint, a holy one. And uh, the idea of the sanctification thing we're talking about today is to grow into being what you've been made, a saint, to grow more and more to be that saint. Um, now, what I'm saying is that this idea of sanctification is saying something profound about the whole purpose of humanity, about your purpose, about life, about everyone's life. Um, so think with me. What is existence about? Now, we've asked this big question many times, uh, and there's a couple of ways you can come at it. But what is existence, what is existence about? Well, let me give you the story of existence. Now, I don't mean by story the fiction, you know, it kind of conveys that idea. Let me tell you the movement of history as the Bible sees it. Um, well, let me start. Creation, the universe, isn't an accident. It didn't happen by random chance, spontaneously one day just appears. 
The universe came into existence by the, the purposeful, intention, deliberate, powerful will of a God, a personal being outside of creation who himself is not created, who is uncreated. He deliberately chose to create the universe and he infused into the existence of this universe the fact of relationship, the importance of relationship with him as a personal God because this God that the Bible talks to us about is not just the force, he's not some mystical being within us all, he is uh, apart from, uh, transcendent, he is a personal God that you can know Uh, and he intended us as his creatures to know him and have relationship with him. There's the beginnings of the historical record. But humanity, in our forebears, but we prove the truth of this every day, humanity broke creation, or more accurately, acted in a way that brought about God's judgment upon creation righteously, that destroyed our creation. We turned our backs on the Creator, not as an accident or a slip-up, We turned our backs on our Creator in pride. We decided He didn't matter that much anymore. That we mattered more. My life mattered more than Him. Uh, Running my life was the way I'm going to live my life. And life ought to be about me and my happiness. That's what the Bible means by sin. We rebelled against our God. And so we as a consequence, brought about the destruction of the universe. Now, we didn't have the power to do that just ourselves. God brought upon the world judgment. Um, He he judged our pride, our self-centred rejection of him, and he subjected the world to futility and fallenness. He subjected the world to decay and dysfunction and death. Now, not as an act of petulance, not as if he's some kind of Hollywood starlet who just got angry, but as a just, measured response to the horror of rebellion and sin. And also as an act of grace, so that we might live in a world that's now fallen and broken and come to our senses, that we might see what we have done and, 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 and cry out to this God and say, uh, we're sorry and come back to him. Now, these pieces all explain why our world is like it is, actually. Why is the world kind of, it looks like it's got lots of good stuff in it, it looks like there's something wonderful, it feels like we've got more to our lives, and yet it's fallen, it's decaying, it's going into debt. How does it, why is it? Well, the Bible explains all of that. It makes sense of the way the world is. But here's the thing. The goodness of God was such that though he judged the world in our pride, in our foolishness and sin, he set about saving the world. And saving us. His purpose, though, was not just to save us a little, but to save us completely. To actually save us from the thing that destroyed us and our world, the thing that's within us and the judgment that's without us. To save us from the thing that we have become proud, foolish sinners who live in rebellion to God. To save us from that to be all that he intended us to be again, to the glory of his purpose for us. Now, now, recounting all of that is just to say that's what's going on in the world. That's what all of life is about. Another way to come at it, because we're getting closer to our word sanctified, another way to come at it is to think about the purpose of God. Think with me about this one. 
What is the purpose of your life? Now, don't say anything, of course, but what is the purpose of your life? Um, It's often the case that when you go through hard times, you might have someone come alongside you and say something like this, God has a wonderful purpose for your life. And you go, oh, that's a great comfort. And here's the thing. If someone says to you, God has a wonderful purpose for your life, what do you think they are thinking? And what do you end up thinking when they say it? You know what I'm saying? So someone says, God has a wonderful purpose for your life. What are they thinking will happen in your life to see that wonderful purpose fulfilled? What I think people often mean is that, you know, you're going through a terrible time and God, someone comes along and says, God has a wonderful purpose for your life. What I think they mean and what we tend to hear is this thought that, yes, one day there'll be something amazing comes from this in terms of a new job, a new opportunity, a new set of relationships, I'll have a divine appointment, some, some new, I'll have some cause that I'll be able to be part, some wonderful purpose will be fulfilled and achieved in my life. I think we think that's what's being meant as a comfort to us, that this great purpose will be fulfilled. We imagine that God has a purpose in my life and it's this kind of personal, private, particular thing that's going to happen and I'm waiting for that to be revealed and I might actually seek God's purpose for me. And so we get to the text today. Come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Grab your Bibles, which I know you all have. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to look at verse 3. This is a verse that talks about purpose. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. God's will. What is he he talking about when he's talking about God's will? It's another way of talking about God's purpose. God has a purpose for your life. What is God's purpose for your life? That's what it's talking about. The thing that he wants is a great plan for you. What's his will for you? What does he want in your life? That's what's being talked about here. And in fact, in the original language, here's how it goes. Actually, it says, verse 3, for this is God's purpose for your life. This is God's will for you. You want to know if God has a purpose for you? He does have a purpose and this is what it is, is literally what it says in the original. This is God's purpose, that you be sanctified. Now, I want you to notice here, there's nothing said about whether you'd be married or not, about what job you might have, about where you might live, about some divine appointment that might occur, about some cause that you participate, whether to buy that car or not buy that or have some, nothing said about any of these things. God does have a purpose for your life and it's emphatic. This is what it is, says the text. This is his purpose, that you be sanctified. Thanks, we talked about, thank you, brother, it's gone. That you be sanctified. That you should live a life that was the way God intended you to live life before the whole fall of humanity. That you might be recreated to be the person that we were intended to be, and even more glorious, in fact, in the full measure of who Christ is, where sin is eradicated. Strictly that we'd no longer be in rebellion to God, but that we'd live lives entirely set apart for God. 
to be people who now seek to please our God. Now, I use that language intentionally because verse 3 is part of a larger section. If you come back to verse 1, let me read it and follow it through for you. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. He's written this whole letter that he might give instructions about the details of life, that they now might be able to live a life that pleases their God rather than being in rebellion to their God. And then he gets to verse 3, and it's effectively almost a summary of the kind of idea. We've given you all of this, verse 1, in order that you might please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you to urge him, Lord, to do this more and more and more, to grow in your desire to please God, to grow in your desire and ability to please God. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, to please the Lord. Verse 3, for this is God's will, that you should be sanctified that you should be more and more set apart to live a different life, no longer in rebellion, but more and more pleasing the God who made us. And he gives a very particular um, expression of that, the second half, verse 3, that you should avoid sexual immorality. One very explicit expression of this that he goes to is the issue of sexual morality, that what you do with your body sexually matters, he says. Because to live in sexual immorality is to be at odds with God's purposes. It's not to please God, because God's, God's determination, purpose for you is to enjoy a sexual relationship within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. Outside of those boundaries... It is to act in a way that doesn't please God. Actually, just notice that God invented sex. He invented sex for a man and woman to be able to enjoy a physical union where they come together in a greater and greater unity over life, uh, enjoyment of one another and secure context where they can raise children that have been given to them, blessed by the Lord, to be raised in secure and loving care. And to be sanctified, to please the Lord, is to learn to take control, verse 4, over your bodies in a way that is holy and honourable. It is to no longer take advantage, verse 6, of a brother or sister by the way we treat them. Verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. See, now plug all of this in to the great movement of history. in our pride and foolishness, we threw off God. We said, we're the centre. We want to do how we want to live. We we rebelled against God. God judges, but now begins to work to save, to bring us back to be people who live the way we were intended to live, under God, pleasing God, living for God. Now, there's a kind of big picture for us, and, and what I want to do now is kind of drive this home with three... Uh, sort of statements, because that's just the introduction. I just I want to drive this home with three statements to try and kind of help us see what's being said here. Let me give you the first statement. God cares about everything in your life, but he cares about this one thing more than anything else, that you be sanctified. 
You see, God does care about everything in your life. He is sovereign over all the bits of your life. He cares about who you marry, where you live, what job you have, what car you drive. Uh, He cares about what you do Saturdays. He cares about every detail of your life. And every anxiety that you have, you ought to bring to him in prayer. He cares. But, But the danger with me saying that is this, that you can hear from that that he, you end up thinking he cares about all those details like we care. And there's a problem. Because we care about those details far more than we should. And we think God must care like we care. He does care, but just not like we do. See, we're brought into a view of the life that we live, the world that we're in, which is no different from the world. We're, 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 this, if this is all the life you have, this is the only, then it really does matter desperately to the world around us where you live, what job you have, who you marry, what car you drive, what holidays you make. It matters desperately because we only have one life. Now God does care all about those details and I'll come back to this in a moment but he cares not like we care, not like our world cares. Let me show you this illustrated for you in work. Now I know that this is not a big thing for many of us and so it might be easy to see this. I'll come to the one that I think is a bit bigger for us. Chapter 4 he actually talks about the context of work. Many in our world do obsess about what job to get. They live kind of worrying about the career I'm going to have and what does God want me to do with my working life and which job should I choose and so on. Well God speaks into this in chapter 4 and uh, he tells us about this in um, verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. It's quite surprising. He comes to the question of work. And he says this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, a non-disputive life, a non-confronting life. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Now, that is not a critique of office workers and an affirmation of builders, right? <laughs> just to get that clear. Um, I think pushing a pen is working with your hands. He's just, he's, 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 I think he's effectively saying, basically what he's saying is, here's, my t- here's, God's, here's God's will for your life, get a job. Get a job. And mums of kids, you've got the job already, right? You don't need a job outside of the home, though you may because of... But this is not a... Um, Get a job, says the Apostle Paul. Get a job, and he goes on to say, verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Why are we to get jobs? Why is our family to make sure it's earning an income, whether one or two? But why is a family? So that the family is not dependent on others. So that the family is not bludging on society. So that the family can pay its own way. And Paul elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians talks about so that you can actually have something to give in Ephesians 2 as well. So that you might be generous to others. You might be to support the work of the church. You might actually be given to those who are in need and so on. Get a job, he says. He doesn't say which one matters. In fact, the fact that he talks about get a job, use your hands, suggests that he doesn't care whether it's menial. In the cultural context of his day, that would be a somewhat uh, lower-order job, the one. That you, but he says, get one and work. And he cares about the way you work, that you might win the respect through your working life, that you might not be regarded as lazy, that you might not be regarded as someone who just turns up and goes through the motions and leaves as quickly as you can, that you might be a good worker, that you might invest and work hard. That's what he cares about. Why does he care about these things? Because 
God's purpose for your life, this is his will for your life, your sanctification. That you might be like Jesus. That you might be Christ-like in all you do and the way you do it. He cares about your job, but just not the way we care about our jobs, do you see? Now, he cares about marriage, and if I could be a little bit more shocking, let's go on to the harder one. Is everyone okay with where we're at so far? Come with me to 1 Corinthians 7, because it gets more shocking. Come across to 1 Corinthians 7. And very quickly, much more to be said here. Chapter 7 uh, of 1 Corinthians, he talks about marriage. Now, this is his chapter on marriage. And um, what would you imagine someone who's writing about marriage and whether you should marry and who you should marry might say? Well, if it was in our modern popular culture, he would have to say a lot about praying about it. He'd have to say a lot about finding your soulmate, the perfect partner, how to do that. What the Apostle Paul says is very, very different. Um, Have a look there, verse 10. Uh, Oh, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. Why? Now, we haven't got time here to go through all of this, but effectively what he's saying is the reason he thinks it's better to stay single is because, uh, uh, verse 29, verse 30, verse uh, verse 32, because the great concern is sanctification. It's winning people from sin. And so being unmarried gives you more time and space to commit to that. So it's better that you actually are able to give more and more time to that. Being married makes you concerned about the things of this world. That's his category, you see. It's not about whether you'll be fulfilled. It's not about how significant it will be. It, it, it's, it's a very different set of concerns that he brings to it. But, verse 9, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. Now, why is it better to marry than burn with passion? Because it's your sanctification that matters most. It's that you live holy and pure lives that matters most. So when bring, Paul talks, when, the, when God brings a word to us about marriage, what he's concerned about is just very different things. Goldiness, holiness, maturity. Not satisfaction, fulfilment, soulmate. Very different. Now, I would offer that there is wisdom about who you should marry, and he comes to that at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 39. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. She doesn't even have to pray about it. (laughs) Just, you're free. Free to choose the one you want to marry. But look what he says. But he must belong to the Lord. Why? Because what happens in marriage is a union of two people and how can uh, those opposed to Christ be united in one flesh to those who are for Christ? And so being one in flesh is important to him because of our sanctification. Now, of course, he has much to say about if you marry to an unbeliever and what that all means and how you sanctify the unbeliever. But the Apostle Paul is just bringing a very different lens to it. That what matters most... God cares about everything, but what matters most is your sanctification. Now, I would offer too, and tonight I'll be preaching this, I do offer there is some wisdom about who best to marry. Who best to marry? What would be the best person to marry, given all that we've said so far? Who should you marry? One who will help you be sanctified. Help you pursue the things of Christ. Do you see how it would all flow? but you're free. You see, the first point 
is that God cares about everything, but he cares most about your sanctification. It eclipses all other concerns. Second, sanctification is inseparable to the very act of God saving you. Sanctification is inseparable to the very act of God saving you. Sanctification is not secondary, optional, an add-on. It's not something that some Christians pursue and others don't have to pursue. Your sanctification is exactly why Jesus died for you. It's why he came to save you. His purpose is your sanctification. This is his will, your sanctification. This is the very point of Jesus' death, calling you to faith. Have a look at Titus. Come across to Titus chapter 2. Flip right over to Titus chapter 2. The three T's are there. 1, 2, Timothy, Titus. Um, Come across there. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. In in the flesh of Jesus, he comes to offer salvation. Um, And this grace of God that appears in the Lord Jesus teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The whole point of the coming of the Lord Jesus is to teach us to be different, to live differently, to be saints, to become saints through the merits and work of the Lord Jesus who dies in our place, whose death dies as a substitute to carry upon himself our sin and give us the gift of his righteousness so that by his gracious gift we become saints set apart to God. We are now adopted into the children family of God. We are his children. By no work of our own, no righteousness of our own, no merit of our own. It's all a free gift. But he did all of that. The very purpose of that was that we might learn to grow to be what he has made us to be, saints. That we might grow in holiness and godliness, which sounds all weird until you realise that what he's saying is that we might grow to be people who learn to please our Father more and more every day. That we find our desire and heart to be in pleasing him, not living for ourselves. That is the great purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 comes to mind. Um, He died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us, that we might please him. That's God's purpose in the death of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross to pay so that we don't have to, that we might be forgiven freely that we might be free from condemnation. But he did that, that he might then remake us in the image of his son. People use different language for this. I love some of these different ways of these different ways of thinking about this. Some people have used the language of he saved us from the penalty of sin for free. To save us from the power of sin. That we might day by day have the power of sin stripped and more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit live a different life. Others have talked about this as full salvation. Jesus died to achieve for us full salvation, not just a salvation from the penalty of sin, but salvation from the power of sin, that sin might be eradicated entirely in our life. And what he's meaning is rebellion against God might be eradicated. We might have a new inner being which he has gifted us that we might see emerge and flourish within us of a life lived to please our God day by day. Now, the assumption in all of this is that this is God's good gift. 
This is a challenge for us because I think the language of sanctification does not have good press. The whole idea of becoming holy is not attractive to us. There's reasons for that. It's interesting. Do you remember Craig Dobby? Uh, wonderful friend who was a pastor amongst us for some years now, pastor in Grace Church. Um, Craig used to teach in a Christian high school uh, for some years before he became a minister. And he, um, he did this exercise every year with a class. This is mainly kids from Christian homes. He'd put them a word association. He'd say, if I give you the word holy, I want to give you the first word that comes into your mind. So he'd say, holy. And they would all shout back, what word do you think? Boring. Boring. Now, why did you get it so quick? That's interesting. 8.30 took, we're really slow. They were trying, I don't know. Yeah, boring. He said every year, every year it happened. I say holy, they say boring. Now why is that? Why do we associate holiness and boring? Can you blame the parents, perhaps? I take it because there's a spiritual force at work in our world to make sin look attractive and to make godliness look ugly. I think sin within us is so perverse that the thought of living every day to please God is unattractive. Where's that come from? Sin and the work of Satan. One of the terrible things that Satan does is he holds out sin as a bait and he hides the hook. Every rebellious act against God, every sin has a hook in it. But Satan has worked to put a bait around that hook so that you never see the hook. Sin is always destructive. The act of living for self, the act of pleasing self, not God, always has a hook. You see, what did we gain from living in rebellion to God? Shame, a spiralling down, self-condemnation, slavery to self and our passions, slavery to God's rejection, slavery to death. That's what we've gained. But Satan has done a task to hide it. Take sexual immorality. Our world has made it with this bait that makes it seem as if sex outside the bounds of the marriage of a man and a woman is so good and so pleasing and the church is wrong to have always been against this kind of stuff. It was wrong to be against pornography. It's killjoy. Let people be free to express their sexuality however they choose. And now what's happened in our world? We are seeing the full flowering of that hook, that disaster. We've thrown off boundaries and our world is now consumed by sexual perversion. Our young children are captured by a sexuality that will destroy them. Because we are bought into the bait that the world has offered and failed to see the hook and God has called it out and cried out for it all along because he is a good God. This sexual is destroying marriages, it's destroying young girls, particularly young men, families, health. God's good gift is your sanctification. It's his good gift that you be holy, that every day you learn to please him more and more is his blessing in your life. You know, one of the powerful ways to appreciate this is to look at the person of Jesus. Jesus describes his life, he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. My food, the thing I live for is to please my Father every day. 
And what was the life of Jesus like? It was the most alive life that has ever been lived. He was a man of strength and dignity and courage and self-control and love and grace and kindness and self-sacrificial service. There was a power to him that people recognised and saw. There was a richness to who he was. That's God's purpose for you. He died. He sent his son to die for you, that you might be released from the penalty of sin, which is destroying you, and from the power of sin, which is destroying you, which is taking you down, which is spiralling. Our task is to participate with him now, day by day, in fighting sin, turning back. God's purpose. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. You know, I was talking to a man some years ago who said to me, you know, I'm just happy to be saved by the skin of my teeth. And what he meant was, I'm happy just to do the minimum to get saved. And I found that one of the most scary statements I've ever heard. Because it probably suggests he's not even saved. Because, brothers and sisters, your sanctification is inseparably tied to your conversion. If you are truly converted... You will be one with a new attitude of heart given by the Holy Spirit, adopted into the family, that now wants to please the Father. And if you've got no desire to grow in pleasing the Father more and more, it's probably that you've never been adopted as a child. It's probably that you were never saved from the penalty of sin. This is so deeply serious because sanctification is inseparable to justification. It's massive. What is God's purpose for your life? For every human, it's to be rescued from sin, not just the penalty, but the power of it. And God's good gift to you in the work of Jesus is that he saved you from the penalty that you might be brought into the family by his grace, not by works, that you might now be a person who works to live differently, to day by day fight sin, rebellion, to live purposely for God and his good pleasure. You see, the first thing I wanted to say, sanctification matters more than anything else in your life. Matters more than who you marry. Though we'll talk about a little bit of that. Brothers and sisters, you know what? Every time you, every person who wakes up after their wedding day, many people who wake up after their wedding day say, what have I done? Who have I married? How come this has happened? <laughs> Not me or my wife, but you guys might have gone through that experience. <laughs> and you see, you always marry the wrong person because what marry matters is your sanctification in your marriage. It's not about finding your soulmate. It's finding someone who will serve you together with the Lord Jesus to love one another as he calls you to do. Whoever it is you're married to. Sanctification matters more than anything else in your life. It's inseparable to you being saved. It's what you were saved for. Third, it brings into our life a radical reorientation, particularly towards church. You see... How does the church fit into all of this? Well, in Titus chapter 2, if it's open there in front of you, what's interesting, what's important for us is verse 14. The Lord Jesus, our great God and Saviour, verse 14, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Do you see? Redeem us from sin. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. To purify for himself a people. Sanctification is not a solo thing. 
It's not a just me and God thing. It's an us together thing. This is a radical reorientation towards church. Pleasing God is to be about what he is about. Now, what would be most pleasing to God is to do the thing that most pleases God. What is the, God, what is the thing that God is most concerned to do in the world? You've heard it all. What is God most concerned to do in the world? Save it from sin. Save it from the penalty of sin. Save it from the power of sin. Produce Christ-like character throughout his world to redeem and rescue us from slavery. To bring us into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's God's great purpose. Well, here's the thing, friends. The more you know that that that's what God about, how am I going to live a life that pleases him? The thing that pleases him most is to participate with him in the purpose he's committed to achieving. If he is about saving people from the penalty and power of sin to produce Christ and produce, produce the freedom of the children of God, well, what is most pleasing is to join him in that great activity. How do you join him in that great activity? By pursuing it yourself and looking for ways to give yourself to serving others, to help them come free from sin, be released from the power of sin, be brought to Christ and have Christ grow in them. Where does that happen most particularly? In church. That's what this is about. This whole experience in large measure, not entirely, but in large measure is about us coming together to be built up to pursue sanctification, to be brought to faith and grow in our faith. That's what this thing's about. And if you are to please God, if you're to be about pleasing God, which is what sanctification in your own life is about, more and more you will see the centrality and importance and significance of church. That you gather here, that you sing to one another, that you speak words to one another, that you by your presence encourage others, that you wake up, on Sunday morning, committed to being here every week for the sake of your brothers and sisters, to serve and love, because the big thing in your life is to please your Heavenly Father who is about this thing. Do you see what I'm trying to say? For you, church won't be a thing that you remember on Sunday morning. It'll be at the centre of your, year, your week as you think about your week and plan your week. There is much growth that needs to happen amongst Australian Christians in this area. Do you know the average attendance in church is 50% across Australia? That is, people come to church once every second week. That's average. It, It cannot be so if we seek to genuinely be sanctified, please our God, who is about this activity. Do you know that if everyone in our church tithed, we would be able to increase our giving by about another half bang we would never have a financial problem again now why is that the problem because we just don't see the world and God's purposes in the world the way God sees it and we've got so much of this journey of sanctification to go on together now I'm not having a go I'm wanting to stir you to see God's purposes for you it's his purpose that you be sanctified it's his will It's inseparable to your conversion and it radically reorientates you to church. And it does end up affecting your other decisions like where you live, what job you have, who you marry. How might it affect those things? Let me tell you. The more sanctified you are, 
the more you'll think through all of those decisions in terms of whether or not they'll help you participate more in God's purposes or keep those purposes on the sideline. Will the job you choose, the marriage partner you choose, the house you, where you live, will those decisions further your ability to serve God's purposes, to win people from the penalty of sin and the power of sin? Will it further those purposes or will it just be your own decision to do what you want to do? Do you see the profound, sanctifying difference understanding these things makes? But brothers and sisters, let me finish by saying, this is not burdensome. It's hard work, but it's God's good gift who wants to free you to be the full measure of Christ, to be everything that Christ is, in all his glory. That's his purpose for you. That's why he came in the person of his son to die for you. That's why he's given you his Holy Spirit, that you might actually be strengthened and helped. That's why he's given us church. He's given us all we need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your determination to change and grow us, to to have brought us to be saints through the work of Jesus and now by your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to seek to produce Christ in us. Please help us be captured by that purpose, to see how central and significant our sanctification is, to see how important it is, how your very great purpose was that, that we might participate in that actively together with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.